I want to join with the others in extending our welcome to those who may be visiting with us, especially if you're online visiting with us. We're so thankful for you joining in. We pray that this will be edifying and helpful for you. Our desire is to draw people near to the Lord. We're going to be talking about that, especially as Jesus said, come to me at the very end of this text that we're looking at today. We want to help you to come to him. We are uh, trying to help each other to, to come to him and to be with him. And that's our desire for you as well. So we're thankful that you're, that you're joining us. If you're listening in later, if you want to reach out uh, to us and if you have any questions or anything that we can help you with, we certainly want to be able to do that. And especially if it uh, touches your spiritual life, that's what we're here for. Matthew 11 begins with this look at John's doubt. And I say that with a little trepidation. Um, there is debate about whether or not John was doubting or whether he wanted his disciples to, to see what Jesus was doing. Uh, but it begins with this question from John in uh, verses 2 and 3 of Matthew 11. When John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? But certainly by the end of Matthew 11, there can be no doubt who Jesus claims to be. And in fact, he will send messengers with word of who he is back to John. And from that point forward, John's disciples begin following Jesus with no doubts. We're familiar with Jesus' beautiful invitation, Come to me, you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a, what a beautiful invitation that is. But I think we're not as familiar with the context in which he says that. It is a bit striking when you read through Matthew chapter 11 and then see that he ends with this invitation. There's a broader context, of course, that Jesus is teaching. He's been teaching extensively in Galilee up to this point, up in the northern area, uh, away from the religious uh, leadership establishment in Jerusalem, away from the temple, in the backwaters where the simple people live, where he grew up. But opposition to him is beginning to mount from the religious leadership. They're even sending people up to Capernaum and some of the cities in Galilee to sort of show what the party line is, what the establishment believes down in Jerusalem. And so in Matthew chapter 9, for example, um, after starting at verse 32, uh, Jesus has been uh, healing and doing these miracles, and he comes out of a synagogue, and they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed, Matthew 9, 32 says. And when the demon was cast out, uh, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees, the religious leadership, said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. That is the party line. We see that over and over that that's what they're saying. Even those who actually haven't seen what Jesus is doing and haven't heard what he's teaching, they're sent up from Jerusalem with this message. And that's what they begin to say. And so this religious uh, opposition has already begun by this point. And as we go through this uh, sort of broader context here, shortly after that, Jesus in Matthew 10 at the beginning, has called together his apostles. We see from the other context that he actually separated them about a year earlier, and now he's going to send them out. And in Matthew 10, uh, he sends them out near the end of his first year of teaching, sends out the 12, and then we're told in chapter 11, verse 1, before we look at this question from John, it came to pass when Jesus, when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. <laughs> 
He has sent them out to go on and prepare the way, but he goes back through the cities of the twelve and is preaching there, still in the region of Galilee. The more immediate context in John chapter 11 is that John the Baptist, in, in, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 11, is that John the Baptist in prison has heard of all that Jesus is doing, and he sent these messengers out to see if he is the one. And Jesus sends the messengers back with a message. Let's look at uh, Matthew 11, verse 4. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. (laughs) So Jesus is fulfilling what the prophecies about the Christ have said the Christ would do. Not long after this, Peter will say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he will say, you're blessed because God has revealed these things to you. This is not flesh and blood that has shown you this. Peter has been comparing what the texts have said about the Christ. Later, he'll make arguments based on that as he goes out and teaches in the book of Acts that Jesus is the Christ who was to come as he goes before the Jews and says, this man fulfilled what was to be fulfilled by the Christ. That's how we know who he was. So Jesus sends messengers back to John with proofs of the Christ, and he says, that's what I'm doing. Tell John what you see me doing. That is the answer that he sends them back with. And so in our more immediate context, we have this. But then Jesus turns after doing that, and he begins to speak with the multitudes who are standing there. After he sent this proof out, he turns the multitudes and begins to ask them what they were expecting from John. And I want you to notice sort of the bite in his remarks here, starting in verse 7 now of Matthew 11. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? (laughs) And he's going to talk about how they've received, or really how they haven't received John. But what Jesus is saying is, John is certainly a prophet. (laughs) Is that what you were looking for? Did you want to be of this generation that's blessed because a prophet has come into their midst? Now remember who's speaking. The Son of God whom they're rejecting. He says, did you want to have this prophet in your midst? Is that why you went out? You wanted to see something spectacular? And yes, you did. But he was preparing the way for me. He is the one that was prophesied about who would prepare the way for the Lord, for Jehovah who was to come with redemption for Israel. And he says, what shall I liken this generation in verse 16? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you and you didn't lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. There's a rebuke in this. 
They went out to see a prophet, but they didn't want to hear what the prophet had to say. They just wanted to be the generation that had a prophet come. It's been 450 years or so since Malachi prophesied. They've been waiting for this moment because they want to be the ones on whom this new age dawns. But they're just like their fathers who heard the prophets and rejected the message and killed the prophets. And Jesus is saying, you're just like a bunch of children. You want to play the games, but you don't want to listen to the rules. They were impressed with John. They went out to see this reed shaken by the wind. They went out to see this man in soft clothing. They went out to see this famous guy, but he was nothing like what they expected, and they were offended at him in the end. They were impressed with him, but ended up making excuses and did not fully repent. And Jesus is saying, and you're not fully repenting at my word either. So that gets us to the immediate context of where he's going to bring in this great invitation. But it gets worse before it gets better. (laughs) Read with me, if you will, 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. Jesus began to denounce or to rebuke their cities. Remember in the beginning of chapter 11, he went to their cities to preach, the cities where the apostles were from. And as he's preaching, he's rebuking them. John chapter 1, verse 44 tells us that Philip, Andrew, and Peter are from Bethsaida. That's one of the cities he mentions here. We'll find out later how important Capernaum was. That really was sort of Jesus' center of, of, of work from Galilee. He was from Nazareth, but he moved to Capernaum, and that's where he did most of his mighty works. So he's gone through these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and others up in the region of Galilee, And it's where he's done so many miracles. We know that in Cana of Galilee, he did his first miracle, changing the water into wine at the wedding. Think about what it would have been like to have been in one of these villages and to have had this man come and begin to perform these mighty works. In Capernaum, he casts out a demon in the synagogue. The people are so impressed because not only does he teach as one who has authority, he backs it up. And the demons ran at his word. That whole afternoon after doing that, he begins to heal people and cast out demons at Peter's mother-in-law's house after he heals her. At night, he gets up early so he can pray and be alone, and people start looking for him. Peter and then finally find him in the middle of the night and say, everybody's looking for you. Of course they are. He's casting out demons and healing. And he says, let's go on to the other cities of Galilee so I can teach there. That's the reason I've come. And he goes on and he heals lepers. And he, and he makes paralytics to walk again, back in Capernaum again. The paralytic that's carried by the four friends, that, that's, in, that's in Capernaum, where he forgives the man of his sins and then he heals him to prove that he has the power to forgive sins. He makes the blind to see. 
He does miracle after miracle after miracle. Can you imagine what an amazing blessing it would have been to have seen all of those miracles? But John suggests that we do see all of those miracles and that seeing those miracles that have been recorded is enough to bring us to belief. We see more than they saw, I want to suggest to you, because we've seen the end of the story. We've seen the resurrection, which they at this point had not yet seen. We've seen the key to all the miracles. We've seen the proof, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, that He is the Son of God, declared to be by the resurrection from the dead. It's amazing to think about what we have seen. And He's rebuking these cities because of all they saw, and yet they did not repent. That's the reason for His rebuke. It's interesting to consider that both John and Jesus began their ministries with the word repent. Turn with me to Matthew 3 quickly. Matthew 3, I'm going to start at verses 1 and 2. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we're told uh, in Matthew, 3, uh, Matthew 4, sorry, verse 12, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. In verse 17, we finally see what he's teaching. He's doing this in conformity with the prophecies we're told in between. But in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that message sound familiar? It should. That's John's message. Both of them began with repentance. They began their message teaching about repentance. They backed up the power of their message. John preaching the word of God and appointing the Christ, Jesus, by working the mighty works in these cities as he preached this message of repentance. That's where it began. That's not where it ended. They did not repent. They loved having Jesus among them. At first they were fascinated, but then they began to listen to the religious establishment. They began to be offended at what Jesus was teaching, and so they did not repent. Brethren, we cannot simply enjoy the excitement of the message. It's a beautiful message. It is a blessing to spend time together studying in His Word, to be encouraged, to be built up, to be moved, but not to repent. Judas was moved after he saw what they did to Jesus. But it ended badly for him because he didn't fully repent. He went to the religious leadership and they said, you see to that. <laughs> and he went and hanged himself. The truth is an exciting thing. To know it and to hold it and to handle it is a great blessing. But not to live it is condemning. <laughs> Jesus is pronouncing woes. He's weeping over these cities because of their reaction. It's amazing to me that as he's doing this, the impending judgment is coming on another great city. One that he'll stretch out his arms and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to take you under my wings, but you were not willing. Because they also would not repent. And their destruction was going to be swift and brutal within another 40 years after these lessons. There would be a terrible destruction of those cities. Of Jerusalem, <clears throat> sorry. The other cities, of course, later... John and Jesus began teaching repentance. And that's what God's Word is calling us to all through. But I want you to notice how strongly he calls them to this. Verse 21, 
He says, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the mighty works that you saw had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth long ago. They would have repented if they could have seen what you have seen. What do you think Jesus would say to us? Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they could see what you have seen. Absolutely. What we've seen would have been enough for Tyre and Sidon. Isaiah 23 is a burden against Tyre, the whole chapter. The prophets were speaking about these people and their cruelty. Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians, were wrapped up in idolatry and in cruelty toward the Israelites. Amos chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Talk about the cruelty of those from Tyre toward Israel and toward others. God was pronouncing their judgment and offering them even opportunity to, to repent. Jezebel was from Sidon. And God granted opportunity even for a time, for Ahab and Jezebel to repent. But these wicked places would have repented, Jesus says, if they could have only seen what we see. Sometimes I wonder if we are not so comfortable where we are that we may feel like, well, I'm too good to repent. Now, we would never say that. But I wonder if we feel that way. I've got it good. I'm a part of the right church. I'm always studying the Bible. I'm always singing praises to God. What do I have to repent about? The Pharisees and the religious establishment were too good for repentance. These cities where Jesus did all these mighty works were in some way too good for repentance. We're the people of God. In Jeremiah chapter 7, they were too good for repentance as they were calling out, the temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God is here they were also robbing from their brethren and stealing from God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul has laid it out that the Gentiles, they're reprobate. Their minds are given over to reprobate thinking. But then he says, and you Jew who judge the Gentile, are you any different in chapter 2? So he gets to chapter 3 and verse 23 and says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody who's too good to repent. In fact, that's the whole text at the beginning of chapter 3. There is not one who does good. No, not one. (laughs) We all need repentance. And we need constantly to be reminded of our need to come to repentance. The language is strong here. And he turns to Capernaum in verse 23. This is where he moved after leaving Nazareth. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. He got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. We find out his own city there is Capernaum. We might think Nazareth. That's where he was born and raised. He's born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. But as an adult, his headquarters and his teaching are in Capernaum. It appears that Peter's mother-in-law lived there. That's where he healed her, at least, in Mark chapter uh, 1. Looks like Matthew or Levi, his tax office, was there. That's where Jesus encounters him and calls him. That seems to be where James and John and then Peter and Andrew had their fishing business headquarters together. From Capernaum. The name of the town means the village of Nahum. It's quite possible that that's where the prophet Nahum had come from. Can you imagine something exalting like that? Even if it's not where the prophet came from, the name means village of consolation. That's what Nahum means. What a great place to be from. <laughs> the consolation of Israel, literally the name for the Christ who was to come. This is my town. And so you might see why Jesus would say, <laughs> Capernaum, are you exalted to heaven? 
No. You're going to be brought down to Sheol. Be brought down to Hades. He did so many miracles there. It's where he regularly attended the synagogue over and over. As we go through the Gospels, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum. He goes to the other ones as well. We see him in Nazareth. We see him in other places. But he's regularly at the synagogue in Capernaum. He teaches over and over on the Sabbaths there. It's where he gave the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. After feeding the 5,000, he goes back across the sea and they catch up to him in Capernaum. And that's when he tells about him being the bread of life. That's where he was going back home. And so many other miracles. Like I mentioned before, the, the lame man who was healed as his four friends brought him in. So many demons cast out. So many other sicknesses healed in Capernaum. And so Jesus makes this contrast. Are you exalted to heaven, Capernaum? No. You're being brought down to Hades. This exalted city would end up in the unseen realm of the dead. They have a name that they're alive, but they're dead. <laughs> and he says, Capernaum, Capernaum. Sodom would have repented if Sodom had seen what's been done in you. Whew. Think about an Israelite hearing that. You are more wicked than Sodom. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, that's exactly what Isaiah says. Oh, sons of Sodom and daughters of Gomorrah. He's speaking to his people that are unwilling to repent of their rebellion and their wickedness. So he's called out all these cities. I want to share with you a quote um, from, from Barclay, not Charles Barclay, but from the uh, biblical scholar Barclay. Uh, I think this is a great thing to think about. He says, These cities did not attack Jesus Christ. They did not drive him from their gates. They did not seek to crucify him. Jerusalem will have that distinction. They simply disregarded him. Neglect can kill as much as persecution can. <laughs> so right. He was right there, constantly teaching among them, doing all these miracles, and they were, they were exalted by that. They were getting a lot of attention. They were thankful, in a sense, that Jesus was right there in their midst, and yet they weren't repenting. And he's calling them to task for their lack of repentance. And then we sort of shift gears, picking up in verse 25. And this is intentional in Matthew. And I want you to see this contrast, because I want you to see who this is that's calling us to repentance and who is calling them to repentance. Starting in verse 25, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 15, Jesus is teaching the apostles who are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. He's teaching them to receive the kingdom of heaven as a child. And anyone who won't receive the kingdom as a little child will by no means enter in. Here he says that the Father, he doesn't say the Father though. He says, Father, we're going to see something about what he's teaching about himself here. Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding, from the religious establishment, from those who think they're too good for repentance, from those who think they have already got it figured out. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the sinners. <laughs> if you don't believe that you need it, then why would you repent? He's revealed these things to the simple, the innocent and accepting, like children. 
not like these cities. These cities are seen as the simpletons. These are the people in the backwaters of Galilee. And are they too smart to accept the simplicity of the gospel? Galileans? The ones that everybody says, can anything good come from there? Have they made themselves too smart to receive the gospel and repentance that Jesus is teaching? I think sometimes we don't recognize what a danger that really is. Look at 1 Corinthians. I want to look at two texts where Paul is calling people to task. In Corinth, we might expect that to be an issue. Here are those who are enamored with philosophy, perhaps. He mentions that early on. But I want you to look at what he says about the brethren themselves. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Every one of us needs to become so simple in our thinking that like children we accept what Jesus is teaching. <laughs> what he's received from our Father, that we accept it as, as loving children. And that we don't just overanalyze. Sometimes we overthink. We just accept it because we trust the love that it's being brought to us in from the Lord. In Colossians chapter 2, it's a real temptation. That's why Paul has to deal with these things. Colossians chapter 2, it's a little bit of a longer reading, verses 1 through 10, but I want you to pay attention to what's going on in Colossae, just like it was in Corinth. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, this is Colossians 2.1, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. I want you to think about what Paul's saying there. It is a real temptation to be smarter than God. <laughs> Isn't that what Eve wanted at the tree? That's so simple, God. That can't be right. We know this can't be true because we believe things that are deeper than that. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, through empty deceit. It's a real temptation. When children don't know something, they don't say, well, we'll figure it out. They go and they ask. In Mark chapter 4, when the apostles didn't understand the simple teaching of the parable of the sower, they went to Jesus. 
And when they asked, he said, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Because they asked. <laughs> That's where we need to be. Like children receiving the kingdom, asking over and over. Not challenging like the religious leadership and like some of these cities were doing. Asking because we genuinely want to know. And if it's a simple answer, then let's accept it in its simplicity. Jesus is telling them in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 now, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Does that sound familiar? We're used to Matthew 28. All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Isn't that exactly what Paul just said in Colossians chapter 2, that all things, the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ bodily, that in Him all the wisdom of the ages have been hidden in Christ? What more do we need? Nothing is missing in Christ. If we're in Him and we have His Word and we trust in Him and we follow His Word, nothing is missing that we need. All things, as Peter will say, that pertain to life and godliness have been given to us through His divine revelation and through Christ. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is saying, I am deity. The fullness of the Godhead resides in me, and my Father I can reveal, and the Father can reveal me. Nothing is missing in Christ. So the appeal then. After He lays out their dire situation, these are warnings. This is not the judgment has already come. These are warnings. Think about what Sodom would do in your situation. Think about what Tyre and Sidon would do if they only could. They've been judged. But you're standing at a point where repentance is necessary. And they would repent. What about you? Where do you stand? And so he says this loving invitation. After all of that hard rebuke, all of that is part of his grace. In showing us where the repairs are needed, God is extending grace to us so that he can say, come to me. Not look to Moses. That was relevant for a time. Not seek out the prophets and argue about what they really meant. <laughs> Not follow some pastor or some preacher. Come to me. That's something that only divinity can say. I can't tell you, come to Carl and it's going to be all right. I can't say that. What I'm hoping to do and what I'm praying to do as I'm teaching this lesson, I'm saying, come to Jesus and it'll be all right. In Him is everything you need. And I'm trying to point you to Him. Come to me is a divine presumption. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. What Jesus has, He has for everybody. Not just for a select few. It's estimated that the ark that Noah built could have contained all of humanity that was alive at the time. Can you imagine what God's desire was with the ark? that everybody should be saved. 2 Peter 3.9, very close to the text that talks about the ark saving the souls that were on it, says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his desire. What Jesus has is all things for all people. All who labor can find in him the response to labor. That word labor is a loaded word. In Genesis 3, verses 16 and 19, that word is used as the consequence for Adam and Eve's sin. 
in birth pangs. The word is labor. She's going to bring forth children. Then he tells Adam, you're going to labor and toil in the sweat of your face. It's the same word used in both places. Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 8. And this is the situation that all of us find ourselves in, everyone who's come along since Adam and Eve. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Groans and labors with birth pangs. The whole creation. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 8, all creation is groaning under the labors that have been put on us because of sin. Everyone is in this condition, and Jesus can call everyone to the rest that he can offer. And he says, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This rest is not a cessation of all activity. It's a release of burden and weight. But there is work to be done. He shares the burden of the yoke as one who has successfully done this work. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us. He has been tempted in every point exactly as we are, but without sin. He knows how to do the labor that we've been called to do here on this earth. And he's done it successfully. In Hebrews 2, we're told why he came and did it the way he did. I want to read verses 14 through 18. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The thought was completed in Hebrews 4. We started there and worked backwards. But he came and took on flesh so he could defeat what was defeating us. He has successfully plowed this field. And now he wants us to get on the yoke with him. Sometimes when they were training a new ox, they would put it with an old ox who had done this work before. And the new ox would learn how to do the work under the shouldering, the burden, with this older, wiser ox. I'm not calling Jesus an ox, but that's the image that he's bringing. One of the possibilities is he's saying, it's on my shoulders already, put it on yours, we'll go together. <laughs> I am the way, is another way he says that. He's guiding us, he's taking the journey with us to show us where we need to go. Another possibility, and this was used a lot in the Old Testament, the concept of a yoke would be his teaching that he puts on our necks. But this is a kind of yoke that is, we can learn from it. We can follow his lead and teaching. He's not a slave driver, but he's gentle and lowly. He's not going to put more on our necks than we can bear. It's not the kind of yoke that we're going to chafe at. It is really the blessing that God offered Israel 
back in Jeremiah's day. Here's Jer- Jeremiah's uh, Israel is uh, chafing at God's instruction. But here's what God says. I want you to, to notice that this is probably where Jesus is quoting from. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is. We recognize that. And walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. (laughs) I want you to go along the road that I've already hoed. Walk here with me. You'll find rest for your souls here. And they said, no, that's not what we really want. (laughs) And they rejected it. They would not listen. But we can. Jesus is offering an opportunity again for listening. For them and for us. He says, my yoke is easy. The word there literally means well-fitted. It is custom-made for every person. (laughs) Jesus knows exactly where your needs are. He knows exactly what work you need to be doing that he can bring you through sin and into eternal life. And he can fit that yoke on your neck that he can join you in this lightened burden. Why is it lightened? He's helping to lift it. He's the one who's taking care of it. In Isaiah chapter 5, we see that the the Israelites had these cords of iniquity, these bands of iniquity that were tying them back. Everybody on this earth is laboring, but those who don't have Christ are laboring in sin. And they're tied back by bands of iniquity and they're dragging their sins along behind them like a sled as they're rowing, as they're they're hoeing their row. Jesus says, come with me. Put my yoke on you. My yoke is not like the yoke of sin that bears with it the marks of shame. Mine is a glorious and light and fitted yoke. In Acts 15, verse 10, Peter talks about a yoke that was put on the neck of the fathers, or James talks about a a yoke that was put on the neck of the fathers that they could not bear, and neither could the apostles. They've thrown that off and taken on Christ's yoke. That's where we need to be. The truth is, we were made to do the Father's will. We were made in His image. We were made to be like Him. We were made to seek His will. We were made to seek His face, as the text so often repeats through the Old Testament. This life is a burden if we fight against God's will. We're going to be burdened down with sin. We're going to be dragging those cords of iniquity. So Jesus goes in verse 20 to verse 30 from woe to you to rest for your souls. You see how intentional that is? Here is where you are. You've seen some amazing things. Other people, if they had seen this, would repent. What's keeping you from repenting? Woe to you for all you've seen, but you continue dragging your sins along. So much I've been hearing from people who are struggling, whether physically, spiritually, This text really has has meant a lot to me as I've been studying more through Matthew recently. But this switch from woe to you to come unto me is such an amazing switch. It's the love of God that calls us to repentance by showing us, laying us bare, showing us where our faults are and saying, but look, I know about all that. I can help you with all that. I suffered through the same things but I didn't give in. And so I can show you how to overcome. That's where Jesus is. It is not too late to find rest for our souls in Jesus Christ. And he just tells us how to do it right here. 
hear, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Repent. That's been the message all through here. Others have. Why have you not? And then take my yoke and do the work. (laughs) Obey. In other texts, he says, take up your cross and follow me day by day. But here he says, put on my yoke. It's a yoke of obedience. This beautiful text should do more than just move us. It should move us to repentance. It should bring us to Christ. That's what he's asking for. And I pray that today, this will be the direction you're moving in. Thank you so much for the encouragement you are to me. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to stand before you and share in his word. If you do not have Christ's yoke on you, you do have a yoke on you. And that burden is more than you can possibly bear. And that burden is going to cost you your life. And if you don't have Christ, it'll cost you your life eternally. We want to help you. If you don't know what to do to take on Christ's yoke, we want to help you learn what that is. Please come and talk to us and we'll share that with you as we learn it ourselves from the gospel. But if you know what you need to do, won't you hear his word? Won't you hear his compulsion for your repentance? And won't you obey? You can start a new life today taking on his yoke, being baptized in the waters of baptism, having sin removed, that you can rise to a new life. We want to help you do that today if that's your need. If your need is something else, you want to make it known, we're here to help you. That's why we're here. If you want to come forward while we stand and while we sing this song for your encouragement, 